I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Have you ever known someone who, you know, you knew them in certain contexts, but then you got to see them in a different context, really in the zone, like just in their element? Have you ever had an experience like that? You just saw a different side of someone? Uh, for example, uh, some of you think back to that coffee house night that we had. It was, goodness, almost a year and a half ago. And we gathered together for warm drinks, tasty treats, and uh, folks would, you, you were sitting next to in church week to week. Suddenly, we're getting up to share poetry and art, to sing songs, right? I mean, who knew? Who, who knew that, that that was in this person? Maybe you knew that they were a musician or kind of a creative type, but to actually see them in the zone, right? To see them in their element, right? It's, it's just amazing to really get to see that in a person. Uh, another example, I, I had this kind of experience with my younger brother a couple of years ago, because uh, mostly I know my younger brother from our family gatherings, right? Eating meals together, opening Christmas presents, playing games, stuff like that. Uh, and and you, I had heard him in those times talk about how much during his time in college he loved working at his school's rec center, uh, how much he'd gotten into rock climbing and kind of adventuring and stuff like that. But a couple years ago, we actually went to his school for his graduation. And I got to see him in his element, right? In his space. We visited the rec center where he had been working, and I got to see just how much his friends and his co-workers really loved and respected him. And then I watched him scurry up this giant rock wall and back down like it was nothing, right? And it was amazing. It was like, wow, like I've heard you talk about this, but look, you know, it was just seeing him right in his element, right where he was. It, it was amazing. And in moments like these, when you really get to see someone in the zone, you get to see more deeply into who they are, more deeply into their character, into their heart. And that's what we see today. Because right here at the center of the Apostles' Creed that we've been considering the last several weeks, we see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And more than anything else, this reveals the heart of God. The death, burial, and resurrection, this moment is God in the zone. This is God in his element, entering death and bringing life. This is who God is. This is what God does. So if you have your Bible Open up to Mark chapter 15. Mark 
chapter 15 is, is what we're going to be reading together this morning. It's one of the passages that tells the story of this line in the creed that you just heard. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so as we read this passage and reflect on this line today, my hope is that we will be able to see the heart of God more clearly. And so let's read Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them. Anyone whom they asked. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. And so the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. And then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. And Pilate spoke to them again, Well, then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cross. I ask as we reflect on your scripture together this morning that you would soften our hearts and sharpen our minds that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we dive into some of the specifics of this line in the creed, I want to share a couple of kind of big picture things about this Apostles' Creed that we've been talking about. First, I want to remind you of something that we talked about back at the first week that we started into this series. The creed says, I believe in. I believe in. Not I believe that. All right, And what this means is that this creed is not primarily about understanding ideas, but rather about trusting 
God's character. All right, it's not just about cognitive beliefs, but ultimately about who God is. And so for each line of the creed, as we've been reflecting on it, we have to come back to this question. Who does this show us God to be? Not what do we believe, but who do we believe in? Who do we trust? Who is this God that we believe in, that we trust in? So that's the first thing I want us to just hold on to as, as we think about this together today. Second thing that I want to share is that much of the creed was formed directly in response to uh, counteract various false beliefs about God uh, that existed in the first and, and second and third centuries uh, when this thing came together, especially to counteract false, false beliefs about the identity of Jesus. So, for example, even back in the first and second centuries, there were people who just thought that Jesus was a good person, you know, or, or, or a great teacher, just a, a normal human who was, was great at what he was doing, but that's all. And to that belief, the creed declares, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Right? This is not just a good person or teacher. This is God in the flesh. This is God's only Son, who we worship our Lord. Right? However, there were also others in the early centuries who believed that Jesus was, in fact, divine, but he wasn't really human. Right? He just sort of appeared to be human, like some sort of spiritual hologram or something. Right? This is sort of how they understood Jesus. And to that belief, the creed declares, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. In other words, Jesus was not just some kind of spiritual appearance. He wasn't just some kind of a, a ghost that showed up. He really was physically born. He really did live, and he even experienced the pain of death. And so the Apostles' Creed was meant to declare who God is and also correct false understandings about who God is, false beliefs about God. And even a couple thousand years later, as we sit here today, I think this creed continues to do those very things, right? Today, especially in the midst of this global pandemic, when we're so aware of sickness and pain and, and brokenness, there are a lot of ideas about God wandering around that I think this creed speaks into. And so, so some of these ideas, what are, what are some of these ideas? One of them is the idea that God simply must not exist. Or if he does, then God is distant, is uninvolved, right? This is the deist God, right? That clockmaker who wound up everything and then wandered away, leaving us all on our own, right? That, that's one fairly common understanding of who this God must be. 
Another idea is that, well, yes, God does exist, but he doesn't really care. Right? He exists, he's around, but man, he, he doesn't really care. And this is sort of the, the sophist God, uh, the God of the early philosophers, often described as immutable, impassable, with all those omni words, right? If you ever heard those, all of those philosophical words. Uh, this is a God who was described in those early centuries as emotionally uninvolved and purely rational, which is to say, Ultimately, God is not love, right? God, God is without love. After all, an impassable God cannot be a compassionate God, right? It's got the same root word there. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Finally, another idea about God that, that is prevalent today is that, well, God does exist, and God is emotionally involved, but the primary emotion that God has toward people is hatred, anger, rage, right? This is the fundamentalist God who is ruthless and domineering. This very well may be the God that some of you grew up with, so these are just a few ideas about God that swirl around in the mix today. God doesn't exist, God doesn't care, or God is just angry. But just like it did in ancient times, this creed corrects our false beliefs and shows us who God really is. In the midst of a culture that says God is distant, God is indifferent, or God is domineering, the Apostles' Creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So let's dig into this together and see just what this tells us about who God is. So the first thing that I want to kind of answer is, well, what is Pontius Pilate doing here in, in, in the creed, right? And what does this tell us about God? Several weeks ago, uh, before we started this series, I posted the Apostles' Creed on Facebook and just left a comment, hey, I'm about to preach through this. What questions do you have? And I got a handful of, of different questions and responses. Some of you commented on that. And one of the questions that came up was, why Pontius Pilate, right? Uh, why Pontius Pilate? What about the religious authorities who handed him over to Pontius Pilate? What about Judas who betrayed him? What about the rest of the story? What, what's going on here? Why Pontius Pilate? And the answer to that question is actually pretty simple, but I think what it says about God is very profound. And so the reason why Pontius Pilate is really simply to provide a date. It, it tells us when, right? The, the creed doesn't intend to single out Pilate or, or leave out the rest of the story. Rather, it's simply giving a date for when this happened. Uh, let me put it this way. 
right? We, we all have minds that work differently. Uh, some may be more left-brained, other might be more right-brained. You know, some work in facts and dates and, and information. Others work with more feelings and stories and, and concepts. But regardless of, of where you are on that spectrum, most neuroscience research shows us that autobiographical memory, meaning the way that we remember and reflect on our own lives, our own experiences, those memories are primarily narrative. They're narrative-driven, not data-driven. In other words, our memories are more likely to be made up of people and places and feelings than they are to be made up of facts and figures and dates. Uh, if you were to ask me to recall a memory from elementary school, I'm not going to respond by saying, well, on April 18th of 19, such and such, right? That's not what I'm going to say. If you ask me to, to recall a memory from elementary school, I'll probably say something like, man, one of my favorite memories is when Mrs. Chernock would read stories to us in the afternoon after recess. I loved those times. They were great. Now, I, I could pause and go, okay, Mrs. Chernock, that was my fourth grade teacher. I must have been nine years old, so that would be, right? And I could come up with a date and a time if I really tried, but that's not how memory works, right? We remember people. We remember experiences, not primarily information. And this is true in our own personal memories, but this was even more true in ancient times, in the ancient world, because back then there really wasn't a formal calendar that everyone followed. There wasn't a, a date system. And so instead of saying, you know, year such and such, you would say something like, in the days of King Herod. Or you would say, when Emperor Augustus ruled. Or you would say, under Pontius Pilate. And that is what is happening here. In the creed, Pontius Pilate was a governor, of, of a Roman governor of Judea in the year 26 to 36. And so what the creed is saying, it was during this time that Jesus suffered, was crucified, died, and buried. This is when it happened, under Pontius Pilate. And that may be a fairly simple explanation. But like I said, I think it actually has profound implications about who God is. To ancient ears, this proclamation would differentiate the story of Jesus from all kinds of other religious stories. Because this isn't just some ancient story about, you know, titans battling the gods of Olympus. It's not some kind of fable uh, meant to give us some kind of moral or, or spiritual takeaway, right? Some, some kind of a myth that's just out there. This is history. It's something that actually happened at a particular time in a particular place. And, and to modern ears, what this means is that God is not that deist God, that distant God who wound up a clock and wandered away. This is a God who enters into history. This is a God who actually interacts with humanity. That's who this God is. God is not distant. God took on 
flesh, walked this earth, lived a human life just like we do. And you see, Christianity is not a religious myth or a moral story or or a theological concept. Christianity is a historical reality in which God enters the world. And this history is still unfolding even now. This actually happened under Pontius Pilate. But what happened? What happened, right? It wasn't just anything that happened under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. But what does this tell us about God? Well, I I mentioned earlier that one of those words that ancient Greek philosophers used to describe their idea about God was this word impassable. God is impassable, which literally means unable to suffer, incapable of suffering. Uh, And the idea that they're trying to work with and communicate is that, well, God is perfect in every way, utterly perfect, uncontaminated with the suffering and unstable emotions of the world. And so in Greek philosophy, this meant that God must be perfectly rational, perfectly logical, right? Which, in fact, is the word that they use to describe God. They they use this word logos, uh, which can be translated word, right? John, the Gospel of John has something to say about that. But this God is purely rational, perfectly logical. Therefore, as an absolutely perfect and purely rational being, God cannot be disturbed with suffering. The ultimate spiritual goal is to escape suffering into some kind of state of spiritual bliss. And that was the worldview of of Gnostics back in the first century, the worldview of of Platonists in the first century. It's the true, it's also the the worldview of many people today who kind of just seek some sort of abstract spiritual Zen state. And and honestly, I, I think there's quite a few Christians who hold a similar kind of view about God and about spiritual life. Right? God is unaffected by the problems of this world, undisturbed by pain and suffering. Many people say that, that all of that pain and suffering is somehow part of God's plan, his perfect plan. And the goal of our spiritual life is to escape this world, to escape its suffering, and head off into some kind of blissful Zen-like heaven someday. Right? I mean, that is the, the spiritual narrative that a lot of Christians have. But the truth is, this is not remotely close to the God of the Bible. Not even close. Nearly every page of Scripture describes God as heartbroken by the sin and the suffering of the world. And in the face of those who claim that God is impassable, unable to suffer. The creed declares he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What this means is that God is not 
distant, and he is not indifferent. God cares deeply. He cares deeply about the world because God suffers with the world. God knows the pain and the suffering of this world. God knows the heartache of betrayal. A little bit after this passage that we've just read in Mark chapter 15, we read earlier this morning in Psalm, in Psalm 22, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means that in some mysterious way, God knows what it's like to feel like God is distant and indifferent. God knows the pain of this world. Jesus is not some kind of glassy-eyed spiritual mystic as much as a lot of those Jesus movies might show him to be that way. Jesus' eyes were intense. And at times, they were squinting from laughter. At other times, they were wet with tears. This is who God is. He knows our pain. He knows our sadness. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is not indifferent. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is who God is. There's one more piece that I want to highlight. Because it is not only that God entered human history under Pontius Pilate. It's not only that God suffered by joining us in our pain. This creed also tells us how God suffered. He was crucified, died, and was buried. What does this tell us about God? Well, when we look to the cross, we don't see a ruthless God who is out to get us. Instead of a domineering God, we see a humble God who died in the most humiliating way imaginable. Paul emphasizes this in Philippians chapter 2 when he says Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. You see, crucifixion was specifically designed by the Roman Empire not only as a way of putting someone to death, but to do so in the most prolonged an excruciating way imaginable. I mean, the cause of death for crucifixion was, was rarely bleeding. It was often asphyxiation, the inability to, to breathe. Because after days of hanging there, their diaphragm and abdomen would be unable to support the weight of taking in a breath. And so they would suffocate 
under their own weight on the cross. Or if it, if it lingered for days, it could have been thirst that took them out. If they lingered there for a while longer, birds would show up, start taking little, little bites out of their face. In the night, animals might come up and, and take bites out of other parts of them, and there was nothing that they could do. Strapped there. Stuck. I mean, absolutely excruciating. Absolutely terrible. And not only this, not only is it a, a death of utter torture, it's designed to be one that occurs publicly. It's something that is publicly showcased. It's a statement to anyone who sees, right? There's a reason why the site of the crucifixion was on a hill outside the city. It was so that anyone coming or going from the city would see, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. This is what happens. Th these shameful people don't end up like them. Right? It was, it was Rome's billboard for power. They hung up crosses and stuck people on them. Right? It, it's death, it's excruciating, and it's public. It's shameful. Absolutely humiliating and shameful death. This is the way that Jesus suffered. This is the way that God suffered with us. This humiliation shows us the utter humility of God. Because though he has every right to, God does not lord it over his people. Because that is not who God is. God is not spiteful or domineering. Rather, he suffers and he dies in the most humiliating way possible, even death on a cross. And even in the midst of this whole trial, the, the whole trial that we just read, Jesus is relatively silent, right? He is not kicking and screaming. He is quiet, and Pilate was amazed. See, this is the God that we see when we look to the cross. Not distant, not indifferent, not domineering, but rather a God who is close, caring, and crucified. God draws close by entering into human history under Pontius Pilate. God shows his care by suffering with us. And God shows his utter humility by dying in the most humiliating way. And so the cross reveals the heart of God, humble, caring, and close. This is God in his element. This is who God is. And so how should we respond? 
How do we respond to this God? Well, there are at least a couple of things that come to mind. We worship this God of the cross, and we walk the way of the cross. We worship the God of the cross, and we walk in the way of the cross. Oh, what does this look like? Well, we worship God by marveling at his nearness, at his care, at his humility. We marvel at who this God is. We pour out our hearts in song and prayer. We meditate on him. We reflect on these truths. We, we study scripture to see who is this God. Wow. We marvel at his character. We worship this God. We also walk in the way of the cross by readily repenting of our sins and by generously serving others. See, if the cross shows us that God is humble and caring and close, well, then we walk the way of the cross by becoming people who are humble and caring and close. In humility, we repent of our sins, the things we've done wrong. In compassion, we let our hearts be moved and shaken by tragedy. We let ourselves grieve. We let ourselves lament. Whether it's ours to grieve or someone else's, we weep with those who weep. And then with nearness, we move toward others. We move close toward those in need to love and to care, to serve and to provide as we are able. This is what it is to walk in the way of the cross. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Let us be a people who worship this God and walk in this way. Amen.